Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is the Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Revenue Officer of the Hornblower Group, Christina Heaney. Christina's had a legendary career working with some dear mutual friends at Madison Square Garden for a very long tenure. She also worked at the NBA, Cirque, uh, which is something else that's near and dear to us, and we're going to talk about all of it. And of course, what you're doing now on the high seas uh, with the Hornblower Group. So a pleasure to have you and welcome, Christina. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Christina, you uh, had a great uh, initial tenure. I think it was probably your second job out of school, I'm going to mm -hmm. guess, mm -hmm. uh, working in the global merchandising group at the NBA at a time when the NBA as a global game was really starting to accelerate one of the areas where David Stern hasn't gotten enough credit is the job that he did to make basketball a true international game and to build the NBA brand. I'd love to go back, give or take 25 some odd years and get your reflections of that early time, which was pretty exciting uh, at the NBA going back to the mid to late 90s. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was a great training ground for really the the whole of my career. I joined in uh, 1997. Uh, my title was secretary. Actually, um, there's the you know in in a company like that and a brand like that, you know, you can get in at any level at any level that'll let they'll let you in. Was my uh, was my approach to it. And I was, uh, it was, I think it was called CPG at the time, Consumer Products Group, and eventually Global Merchandising Group. And uh, my role was uh, simple. It was supporting three executives uh, on the non-apparel side. So it was everything from uh, trading cards, memorabilia, Spalding partners, things like that. Um, it, was a, it was a real interesting time. Jordan had just retired for the second time. We walked into a lockout not long after I was there. And um, I think I stayed through, uh, through 2000. So there was, uh, it was formative years in, in terms of my career. And certainly it was um, a pivotal year for the pivotal time for the league as it really was sort of reinventing itself. Um, fighting, you know, finding their new stars or teams, you know, building back into that fandom that they had built over the course of the, the 70s and 80s and finding new fans and, and trying to figure out what that brand could mean in China and South America and Europe and everything. So it was, it was a lot of exploration for sure. And certainly David was a, you know, a formidable leader in that. I can't say I was, uh, senior enough to be in many of the strategy meetings. But, um, you know, I think there was a definitive uh, turn into relationships with the players uh, and how they could uh, represent the brand as a whole instead of, you know, a particular star, right? So um, how could players represent the brands and the teams that, um, you know, that all of the, the, the teams were focused on? And then um, it was, you know, how do we feed that fandom by creating more and more opportunities to engage with it? Uh, uh, how did they, uh, you know, increase their broadcast rights globally? How did we, in my little role, increase um, the, uh, the opportunity to buy product and, and jerseys and trading cards and all of those things that could 
sort of deepen the relationship with the, you know, with the NBA and the teams and the players when they weren't seeing a game. And, and as you said, a great training ground, even if you're not the executive vice president at that stage of your career, <laughs> you're still in that setting, in a lot of those meetings, mm-hmm. taking notes, getting a chance to talk to the senior leaders. I got to think that mm-hmm. builds a great foundation for a career. Yes, exactly. I, uh, you know, I asked to be in every single meeting. I read every single thing that I was given to make copies of. Uh, and, just, and, you know, I had a great mentor and Donna Goldsmith who went on to be the COO of, um, of WWE. And uh, I just absorbed it all. And I think the, 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 real, um, the real learning was definitely a strive for excellence, but it was rooted in the motivation of providing, um, you know, a deep, deep respect and admiration for the fans. And, and I sort of took that with me as, uh, as I explored other opportunities. Yeah, I, I think that league has gotten more things right than all the others put together. And uh, one of David Stern's last appearances before he uh, sadly left us was with Advertising Week in the fall, I think it was 2019. Um, we did a breakfast at Lincoln Center that he and Gary Bettman and a few other leaders from the industry were on. And uh, he was a big fan of ours. We were a huge fan of his. And, you know, I remember when the NBA playoffs weren't even on television uh, or if they were on, it was, you know, 11 or 12 at night uh, way back when. So to have seen that growth is amazing. Um, and then you navigate your way to uh, the world's most famous arena and yes. begin a 15 15- some odd year tenure uh, about a block from where I'm sitting right now at Madison Square Garden. How did you get to the garden? Yeah, uh, well, there's a it's a it's ultimately a very small world, the the world of sports and entertainment, certainly in New York. And so there was a lot of uh, of, of, you know, friends, friends and colleagues I had met along the way at various teams. and, and my desire to go to um, one of the team, you know, locations, I ended up on the entertainment side of the business, was, you know, following that uh, appreciation to be closer to the fans and actually delivering, you know, more tactically, more uh, on the ground uh, in those experiences that, you know, fans of all kinds had expected. I ended up on the entertainment side of the business, actually working um, on concerts, the Radio City Christmas Spectacular, the Wiggles, Blues Clues, sort of everything in between, which um, again, presented a really different uh, opportunity, but along the same lines of of, uh, just a fidelity to creating these experiences that pass every expectations Every, every expectation for a, fran, for a fan, whether it's a fan of, you know, Billy Joel or, you know, a five-year-old fan of Blue's Clues. So, uh, yeah, I stayed there 15 years, uh, always, a ch- always finding new challenges every year as the company grew and grew and grew. And, you know, I, I listened to your conversation with Barry recently, and he more eloquently than I could gave the trajectory of, of Madison Square Garden from, you know, two teams of building in a network to, to what it is today, and uh, I was—I felt very lucky to be a part of that evolution. Yeah, I, I think one of the one of the great uh, success stories in New York, and it, and it's a real quintessential part of the city, is the Radio City Christmas Spectacular, which you worked on, 
and the joy that that brings every year. And I think the stats, it's roughly the same number of people go to the Christmas show in a much shorter period of time in a much yeah. smaller building than go and see the Knicks and Rangers in an entire season. Uh, and uh, it was one of my great uh, joys to get to work on uh, the Radio City project when Radio City Productions was being sold to Madison mm. Square Garden. Right. Uh, and uh, we got involved in the renovation of the building, which was part of the commitment that your com then company made mm -hmm. when they bought it. Um, and uh, it was incredible uh, to work there and to be in that building. And the economic impact of what it does for New York is tremendous. And that doesn't get talked about pretty much at yeah. all. Yeah, over a million people every year, over eight weeks, uh, like you said, more than the Knicks and Rangers uh, welcome in a year, more than the top, I don't know, five, 10 shows on Broadway uh, welcome every year. So truly um, an icon in, and massive revenue generator, obviously, for the, for the building and Thank goodness, because I think the I think the final renovation bill was over seventy million dollars, and and kudos to Dolans and the, and for you know seeing that vision. Uh, but I joined in uh, two thousand, December of two thousand. It was a record breaking year, record breaking for a lot of New York. And then uh, once again, I had a, a challenge in front of me because then nine eleven hit, and we were in a very uh, unique place of you know uh, we felt that. You know, we, we took a lot of, um, it, we internalized a lot of responsibility for bringing New York back. I know, you know, sports teams did as well, you know, coming back, uh, Broadway did. There were really big moments in the return of, of New York. And certainly we thought of that as, as, you know, sort of caretakers of this bastion of tradition that felt like things would be right again. Um, so it was a very... Um, it was a very difficult but very uh, rewarding challenge, I think, to to bring that show back after after such difficult times in New York. And from there, uh, we never looked back. We just continued to grow and you know take the responsibility of innovating such a tradition very seriously and carefully. And uh, it was a, it was an extraordinary fifteen years. I mean, my favorite times were. Um, actually going on, on a Saturday in December, we would have 9 a.m. shows all the way through 10 p.m. shows. So six shows a day, 36,000 people walking in and out of that theater. Um, and I mean, I thought of it as a cathedral. I mean, it was such a beautiful place. And uh, just to see the what, what you were able to be a part of and what you were able to deliver and, and actually visualize the smiling faces, you know, the kids just awestruck at the gold leaf and the rockets and just the magistrate and then, you know, the pageantry of everything. It, um, it definitely rooted in me a deep sense of, of responsibility and appreciation for delivering, you know, experiences which become pivot moments in people's lives. Yeah, no, you are indeed in that lifetime memory business. So let's dig a little deeper here. And it's what you said brought you to the garden initially and was one of your big takeaways from your tenure at the NBA is that connection to the fan. Talk about the experience and what you did. Let's try to come up with a couple of things that we can say, hey, Christina made that happen. 
that was something that was an innovation that she and her team put in place. You're entertaining an awful lot of people for many people who come to the Christmas Spectacular in particular. That's their one big moment of the year. A lot of those young people in particular that are going to the Radio City Christmas show, that's their only time in a theater all year for young mm -hmm. people who are economically challenged, but a family, it's so important to them and so special. Uh, and I know the garden also works with a lot of not-for-profits to enable young mm -hmm. people to go. Talk about some of the footprints in the sand you left that impacted mm -hmm. the everyday fan. Oh gosh. Uh, well, I would, I would first have to say that, you know, no one person uh, delivered the Radio City Christmas Spectacular. And I would say that of any experience, it's a, it's an army of experts. I always thought of it as a spider web, right? And you might have an idea, but to execute that idea, you had to have all of the synapses working in order to really deliver the first class experience we were looking for. And, and to your point, we had really high standards because we knew that this was not just any show, but it was the show that brought multiple generations together during the holidays, you know, and so there was a, a really heightened responsibility to it. And, um, I, you know, I like to think of it as, as how you would approach a friend group, right? There's certain things that you need to deliver in emotional connections to make sure that you're, um, you're delivering on the experience. You have the enablers, right? So how can you be, you have the planner, right? So the mom being the planner, how can you make sure that you are delivering every, delivering on every expectation, making it super easy for her to purchase tickets, to plan her day, to, we, we created a, a planner for the mom for the whole day, right? Do you want to have a family experience? Are you going with grandparents? Here's the best bathrooms in the city. Here's what you can do around town. We made relationships with, you know, Lego and American Queen, American Girl and all of these other experiences, top of the rock, all these other experiences that made it for a day, right? Because we knew that um, from our research that it wasn't just the 90 minutes that you were in the Radio City Chris Spectacular. It was from the moment you left the house, whether you took the subway, whether you were driving three hours, whether you were flying in, we had to be considerate of that whole entire time that you were going to the Christmas show. So from morning to night or whatever it is, we helped, um, we wanted to help the, the guests plan that whole time, right? Because we felt responsible for, from the moment they left the house to the moment they came home. Uh, the next is we wanted to inspire, right? We wanted to make sure that if that little girl was, wanted to be a dancer one day, that she could meet a rockette, that they could, um, know their names, right? Humanize this line of 36 women so that they could really, you know, appreciate and maybe see themselves there one day. So we had a lot of interaction uh, with the Rockettes and of course, Santa, so that um, you could, you know, take some tangible memory from it. It wasn't just a tableau that you couldn't interact with. You could actually take a piece of it home into your memory bank. Um, we wanted to make sure that we Again, delivered that first class experience. I, certainly on the stage, I have uh, I have no dancing ability, <laughs> so uh, I left that. We definitely left those to the experts, but we um, we wanted to make sure we enabled that. You know, get get those close up behind the scenes photos and imagery, just so that they could feel that guests who are in front of the stage in you know six thousand seats could also you know maybe appreciate what it was taking to deliver 
that experience. A lot of folks don't know, but there was probably a hundred, even if there were a hundred folks on stage, there was a hundred folks off stage helping change and makeup and, you know, and running the elevators of this amazing theater. So um, we want to tell those stories too, to make sure that everyone understood um, just how big a team was, you know, helping them deliver their, their memories. And then lastly, we wanted to, you know, sort of help them reinforce what a good time it was, right? So no one was going to get the perfect shot of the living nativity with 3,000 people in front of you in, a, in the seats, right? So how could we get those photos? How could we make sure that they had those, um, those mementos to take home without, you know, them having the phone in front of them the whole time or, or something like that? Um, we also added a lot of other personal touches. We, um, we had... Um, college choirs come and perform before the shows, kids choirs, just to give a sense of, of um, you know, uh, add, added value, true, but also something that they could also connect with and maybe see some folks and friends they haven't seen before. So long, 15 years was a long time to make some footprints. I'm sure they've all been tracked over time and time again, but that's, that's the amazing thing about that particular show. The folks who come after us, uh, and lead the show have the same, you know, North Star, right? To continue this amazing tradition and and bring it forward with, you know, with the evolution of time and expectations. Yeah, it's a true New York institution, and I give a lot of credit also to that team for sort of mm -hmm. contemporizing the show without mm -hmm. losing the soul of the show. And yep. very often, um, you know, folks miss that. Um, and I think they've nailed it. So let's talk about let's talk about another uh, company that you work with that has an awful lot of soul in a very different way, yeah. and that's Cirque du Soleil, where mm -hmm. you were chief marketing and experience officer. Incredible company. We were lucky enough to have Danielle Lamar, their mm -hmm. longtime chief executive, keynote for us many many years ago, and it was probably my favorite piece of content we've ever had on our stage anywhere uh, mm -hmm. because he simply told the story of how the Beatles love show happened, mm -hmm. yep. starting with the friendship between Guy and George Harrison. And mm -hmm. then everybody at Cirque, as you may know, thought it was over when George died and Olivia and Danny said, no, we think George would have wanted this mm -hmm. to go forward. And all of a sudden they're in a room with Paul McCartney and Ringo and Yoko Ono and Olivia and Danny and lo and behold, Love Happens, which is by far mm -hmm. my, my favorite of all the Cirque family of shows. But talk about that tenure, how you got there. That was a very mm -hmm. exciting growth time at Cirque. Yes, I, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to have worked with Cirque in my role at Madison Square Garden when they had uh, toured New York um, theaters. So they had uh, worked with uh, Windhoek, which was a holiday show at the theater at the Garden that replaced the long running A Christmas Story, the musical. Uh, they had a show at the at Radio City Musical called Zarkana. And so in those roles, I, I had gotten to know um, Danielle and, and the team very well. And uh, they went through a rather uh, unique transition in the um, sale to private equity uh, in 2015. And uh, they were looking for, you know, I think a friend within the, within the larger entertainment community, but someone who appreciated the, crea the creative driven aspect of their, of their world. And so, yeah, I joined in 2015 
as you said, it was uh, wildly unique. <laughs> I, I'm saying it's, it was a wildly unique time to be there because here it was the circus, you know, created by a fire breather and a stilt walker uh, was now, um, you know, going through a really unique evolution and, and now, you know, fueling growth with, uh, with folks like TPG and others. So it's a really interesting time. Um, my role there was, uh, you know, at first to, um, let me see, I think the pivot point that they had recognized was that as they were growing and becoming more accessible and more available more frequently in various cities around the world, um, they were having to find more and more new guests to bring into the fold. And they actually didn't have the system to do that. They didn't have the database. They didn't have the, the digital marketing where with all the social um, content abilities, they had really just gone on word of mouth, which was astonishing for the you know, 10, 15 years that they had been growing. And so my role was sort of the harness that, um, that fandom that they had built over the last 15 years and then fuel it into something that was more scalable and could literally follow our shows around the world and precede our shows around the world uh, to make it easier to continue to fill the buildings. And did they grow too fast? Did they yeah. kind of make some big mistakes? And, and I know that they were really yeah. challenged here in New York. It's tough to make money in this town with uh, labor. Exactly that. Uh, I think exactly that. Um, you know, I, I think of growing too fast for, for Cirque, it, it, my, my measure of that was, did they lose their creativity and did fans stop appreciating their art? And, and I don't think either one of those two things happen. Even the last few days, I, you know, last few days I was there watching uh, what would become um, the Disney partnership with Drawn to Life. I mean, we had people crying in the audience. It was such a beautiful show. Same thing with, um, with uh, you know, we brought back Alegria, another example of them bringing back, uh, you know, sort of reinventing. And, and the shows they were delivering were still, um, were still delivering on the expectations of guests. COVID happened, right? You know, I think they, uh, they did have a lot of, um, expectations of future growth and they had brought, you know, and, and their financial standings were built on that expectation for sure. Uh, and then COVID hit. I've never, you know, unlike the garden, unlike, you know, maybe the NBA when I was there, Cirque was a global brand. They, we were active and active in 65 countries when I left uh, the business in November of um, 2019. And so in the span of two weeks, they watched 65 countries worth of shows closed down, which, you know, it was just no one, we all know, uh, no one could have predicted. And, and that was their, their only source of revenue. They didn't have broadcast. They didn't have other, you know, other ways to build back from the live entertainment ticket dollar. So uh, I'm thrilled to see them, you know, getting back to their old their, their old strength again. I have very fond memories of, um, of my time there, just sort of the, the walls bleated creativity there, right? So it was a very special place. Yeah, super interesting. And Danielle and the team had mm -hmm. me up to their uh, mm -hmm. campus in Montreal yeah. and to see how the young kids train and, um, yeah, it was really just uh, incredible, special, how, yeah. they how they source talent yeah. from all over the world. 
really yeah. totally unique. Um, and I hope they continue to have success too. Yeah, I think uh, it's you know I think a lot of similarities to Disney uh, in that they're they're um, you know one of the art, one of the directors one day uh, told me um, when I was trying to understand how they had how they had dreamt up a particular trick that they were going to do it literally defied gravity and they said and he was sort of surprised by my question and he said I don't know how we're going to do it it was harder to dream it to begin with right and and that permission in that building and and that space to, and how they've curated that space to let folks creativity run wild and then they'd figure out how to do it later right it was, was you know sort of the magic sauce if you will yeah well um, listen any business that um is so deeply rooted in creativity as it grows to ensure that it continues to be a good business yeah. is almost an inherent conflict. And I think they navigated it better than many, um, but, but still tough. Okay, so let's talk about today and let's talk about mm -hmm. what you're doing at Hornblower City Experiences. Mm -hmm. You're not only operating here in the US, but you're in Canada, you're in the UK. It's a awfully one of these sort of, gee, I didn't know that, much bigger business than I think than most people know about. So let's get into it and talk about what you're up to now, Christina. Sure. So Hornblower Group is sort of the holding company for uh, our three core businesses, our three verticals, if you will. We have very into transportation business. So in the category of you did not know, Hornblower Group operates the New York City ferry, operates the Puerto Rico ferry, so municipal ferries, also ferries in Tampa and, and probably about 10 other spots around the country. So that's our ferry and transportation business. We also have an overnight division which uh, which is encompassed by uh, American Queen Voyages, which is an overnight river cruise company uh, based in the US. Um, rivers, Alaska Expedition, Great Lakes. Um, we also have an overnight division in Australia in the leading experiential company there called Journey Beyond. Think overnight trains across the outback, um, overnight lodges under the stars, et cetera. And then lastly, uh, what I want to talk about more about today is City Experiences, which is a portfolio of land, of iconic curated land and water-based experiences um, in about 111 countries. Uh, and this uh, features some really iconic uh, ones, again, in the did, You Did Not Know category, where we uh, operate the statue City Cruises Ferry to the Statue of Liberty. Alcatraz City Cruises takes you to Alcatraz, Niagara as well on the Canadian side. We operate the, you know, the famous uh, Voyage into the Mist and uh, dining, uh, whale watching, et cetera, all around the country as well as um, in Europe. So uh, it's, a, it's a newer brand for us. We've just created it over the last two years. And now we're starting to curate, you know, sort of the brand DNA of what that means and what we can deliver for our guests. And was this something that was sort of pieced together with a series of acquisitions over time? Yeah, exactly. In the last uh, two years or so, since my, uh, I've been here about two years, we've, we've uh, strategically uh, acquired about nine new entities, one of which being the Australian uh experiential company, but most of them were, were, were land-based experiences, iconic walking tours, food tours, et cetera, 
that we could sort of piece together with some of our more iconic offerings, such as the statue uh, and Alcatraz to offer more choice, right? Going back to my, um, my reflection on, on Radio City, you don't just own the, the two hours or whatever it is of the experience. You own as much as you can the responsibility to make the whole day great. And so how can we um, you know, curate and piece together uh, more elements that a family might like or a couple celebrating something might like or somewhere in an educational, uh, aspirational uh, outing for couples or groups or whatever. So uh, over the past two years, yeah, we've had uh, nine acquisitions and rebranded about 25 different brands uh, under the city experiences and city cruises halo so that you know guests could understand and expect from us the same level of quality and, and service from one of our experiences to another. And does that then enable you to go to brand partners and be able to aggregate audience for them? In, exactly. It sounds like on a global scale. Yeah, that's the goal, right? Uh, we've just uh, finished again, you know, the fidelity to the fan and my training there. We've just finished a deep segmentation of this global database so that we can ensure that um, we're actually not only for our guests, but are for our partners, um, you know, helping them find like-minded, like-minded folks, right? So um, exciting year ahead for us to do that as we've just sort of all gotten out of the hospitality uh, travel resurgence from COVID. Um, we're really looking forward to continue to grow um, in those core cities around the world. And you joined the company at an interesting moment in time when yes. the world was largely <laughs> closed. Talk, I know. Talk, talk about that uh, timing, which we'll call questionable at best. Uh, yeah, well. But uh, talk about that. And listen, that's that's an emotional yeah. roller coaster as well as a business and financial one. It, yes, all of that. Um, I mentioned I had left Cirque. Uh, in, you know, I, I worked with them a little bit over the holidays. So really I'd left them in like January of 2000, left as friends, had a great relationship there. Uh, but I, I was definitely looking to take a minute off the road. I was traveling every week of the year for five years and to just, you know, reset myself and my family, figure out what we wanted to do next. And then of course COVID hit. And um, I, I honestly had a survivor's syndrome for a little bit there. I, I had been so deeply intertwined with, uh, with experiences and, and fandom for my whole career. And here my friends and colleagues were just, you know, having terrible times um, trying to manage through, um, you know, trying to manage through the industry and the business and just be there when the world reopened again. And that I think really became the mantra that I internalized, even though I wasn't, I mean, I was helping and supporting a bunch of, businesses that I that I loved, but um, I was on the outside. And this idea of being there when the world returned again, and, you know, watching through that summer, how, um, you know, how lack of empathy, uh, lack of togetherness, lack, lack of communal connection seems to um, be, you know, obvious as the as the as the world and the US and everything sort of like, struggled through the isolation. And so um, when I was looking around, uh, what I could do next, I really, it really became a sense of responsibility 
to uh, be a part of that resurgence, be the conduit for communal connections again, and so on. And and because I was so close to the business side of live entertainment and sports, I knew that was going to take another year uh, because of the you know eighteen thousand folks in a building weren't going to happen for a, a long time. Uh, you know, global tour schedules <laughs> weren't going to happen for a long time. And so I chose travel and, and hospitality, uh, knowing that that would be the first conduit for people to step out and feel like they were living again. And I know it sounds the cheesy, but here I was, you know, at this, uh, this curator of, of emotional and, you know, communal connections for my whole career. I needed that outlet for myself. And I found it, I found it here. I found um, an amazing group of, of deeply, deeply dedicated um, folks who were desperate to, you know, in any way they could deliver experiences for families, for couples celebrating something, for just folks, you know, sort of venturing out again. And uh, so we struggled through reopening like, uh, like most folks, but every day that I was able to go on a boat or go on a walking tour and see folks smiling and talking to each other, trying to understand each other in different languages, you know, it, was, um, it just reinforced that I was in the right place. Yeah, I think we talk an awful lot about all the things as consumers and fans that we weren't able to do and lament them, mm -hmm. but spend very little time talking about the people on the other side who yeah. are delivering those experiences, uh, yeah. whether it's the people that are working, you know, the low wage workers behind a concession stand or mm -hmm. the executives at the top who are, you know, running these companies um, and the emotional and financial impact, but really the emotional impact yeah. that not being able to do that has on them. It becomes your life. I mean, there's no or, there's no normal hours when you're working a concert. There's no normal uh, travel schedule or you know nine to five when you're working at a place like Cirque du Soleil. Uh, and similarly with city experiences, there's no there's no the only thing normal is change, and the only thing normal is is you know a collective that's deeply deeply invested in delivering what our guests expect and i think to your point it was the emotional uh impact that was hardest because it really becomes part of your dna you know you heard barry talk if you work for the rangers it is part of who you are and you've lost that connection but it also drives innovation right um you know, how do you continue to connect as a brand where um, you can't show live experiences? And you saw that in a lot of um, artists and, and players and brands, you know, starting to really develop robust um, digital content in that way. Uh, for, my, for my sake, it's, uh, it was certainly a realization that we would be one of the first uh, industries that you couldn't replace during COVID that would be able to welcome guests back again, timidly at first, masks on at first, vaccinations required in some cases, uh, but it was a real uh, joy to be that conduit for, for folks as well. And as we sit here now in October yeah. 2022, what percentage of your business is back? It varies by country for sure. Uh, but generally speaking in the U.S., it's about 70 to 80% back to what we would call pre-COVID or 2019 levels. And we're expecting it to be fully back next year. 
but we've all gotten smarter, right? We've all gotten uh, leaner and and more um, efficient in, in this last time. You know, these these punctuated equilibrium sort of force change. Uh, and in this case, I think it made us a lot smarter as a business and certainly um, the intention to diversify was one element of that so that we could, um, you know, if we're not quite back in the UK yet or Canada yet, which just recently uh, announced that they were finally um, eliminating the restrictions at the border, we were certainly back in Boston and Paris and, and you know, and uh, Rome and all of these places where we saw a huge resurgence of business. Uh, Australia as well, another huge um, resurgence amongst Australians that, that helped us propel forward this year. Great. That's great. And uh, as we start to wrap, what's hot mm -hmm. on your list looking ahead mm -hmm. to the rest of 22 and 23? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's continuing to move ahead of the guest, especially in a space like um, like travel and, and tourism and our niche of, of you know, tours and sort of edutainment. Um, it, it's a pretty fractured business as well. So, uh, you know, on one hand, you have those you have OTAs like Expedia and Viator who are delivering mass amounts of choice, but don't actually uh, own that end to end experience. On our side, we own a huge portfolio and, and do have that responsibility end to end. So I think we're, um, to use another circ analogy, looking at, a, looking at a, a blue ocean strategy of how do we uh, retain that um, operator and, you know, and, and delivery responsibility while also growing in scale so that we can have enough offerings to, be, to fill up any given, um, you know, any, any given def guest's whole day. Uh, and a lot of that is technology-based, right? Um, frictionless itinerary making, journeying, one, you know, one ticket on your phone that gets you into this museum and this, you know, and this uh, iconic location on this food tour. All of those elements are, are sort of a work in progress for us, but one we're deeply focused on because we think it'll help us differentiate in this new world of, of revenge travel and, you know, the ongoing experience economy. Great. Well, it's a great story. And I think the thread of continuity is that level of care and passion for the fan or the consumer. Mm -hmm. And if there was a common thread to your career, Christina, that's been it going back to those early days as a mm -hmm. secretary, we could say that mm -hmm. word aloud. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I wear, I still have my business card. They gave secretaries business cards back in the day too. So I still have my secretary business card. It just shows, you know, any way in, any way in. And you can, um, you can, you can sort of chart your course of your career from there. Yeah, listen, I've had a lot of titles and my favorite one I think was still inter intern. I think oh, was yeah. probably still my favorite title. So That's where well, most folks get in this world. Yeah, into this hey, business. So great to talk to you, Christina. Uh, thank you very much. You too, Matt, take care.